This is the ARC Energy Ideas Podcast with Peter Terzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Welcome to the ARC Energy Ideas Podcast. I'm Jackie Forrest. And I'm Peter Terzakian. You know, Jackie, I was looking at the calendar. I can't believe January is already blown by. And uh, we're well into the new year, certainly well into the new decade. And I was looking at some charts and data over the course of the last 10 years and Some of the most remarkable things have happened in energy are on the cost side. We've seen the costs of so many of the energy sources really drop dramatically. Of course, natural gas, the ability to liberate tremendous quantities of energy from a a gas well has fallen, even oil for that matter, right? Renewables. Well, the renewables, I mean, uh, in the span of 10 years, I think the cost of solar panels has fallen by 75, 80%. Wind is a bit less, but it's, it's really dramatic and made them pretty much cost competitive on a jewel for jewel basis at the source. But one of the renewables that we haven't really talked about and is intriguing is the geothermal side. Right, the geothermal energy. Yeah, which, yeah, which, and, and geothermal is really. I think all of us would love that, right? Like, get geothermal for your house. Yeah. But I believe my perception is it's really expensive. Yeah, but you've got a, you're building a house, right? Yeah, we are building a house, so and you, you drilled your geothermal wells. Yeah, you know, we looked at it uh, at a high level, I will say, and um, the first numbers that came back were just you know orders yeah. of magnitude higher than using natural gas. So I think that's one where the perception is geothermal is still fairly expensive. Yeah, well, certainly when I, for that we built our house, uh, I don't know, it was like eight, nine years ago, and I looked at it and said, you know, I'm willing to do it, but there's also unpredictability in what the uh, subsurface is where we live. And uh, it was just basically risky and expensive. But, you know, things are changing, much as the paradigms have been broken about renewables being expensive as it relates to wind and solar. We may be on the cusp of change as well in the geothermal world. And that brings me to our special guest today, John Redfern, who's the CEO of Ever Technologies, E-A-V-O-R. And John has got a really exciting new technology that is born here in Alberta. And so welcome, John, to tell us about it. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. So... Jackie, what are we going to do? We're going to talk about uh, geothermal energy in general, maybe with John. Yeah, first, let's talk about geothermal, the different types of geothermal. We'll talk about Ever's technology and its progress and the future possibilities. But I think before we get started with that, John, maybe introduce us to yourself and uh, geothermal energy. Well, I just if I could circle back to some of your earlier comments, geothermal for one's individual house is definitely expensive, but so is individual solar panels in the same way. Utility-scale solar is much cheaper than putting a panel on your house. I guess we're utility-scale geothermal, which is much cheaper. And as well, you talked about all the trends of how solar prices have gone down. And more to the point, things like uh, shale, cost of shale gas and, and horizontal drilling has gone way down as well. And those are some of the input costs we leverage on in uh, our solution. So we're benefiting from the same trends. So you're basically utility scale. So tell us a little bit about the enabling technologies that you're using and and how that works. Well, like I say, the main enabling technologies is the advances in drilling speed and cost and accuracy, which has allowed us to do what you couldn't really have done, you know, five to 10 years ago, at least not cost effectively. But, you know, to really start the story, you have to go back and just talk about geothermal in and of itself. Geothermal, someone told me geothermal is the Rodney Dangerfield of energy sources. It can't get no respect. <laughs> and that, that, that really comes from the fact that it's been around forever. 
on the surface, it seems to be like a real contender. It's ostensibly green and it's baseload. And so when everyone's choking to death on intermittent solar and wind power, they, it looks very attractive. But so, it's been around forever and it just doesn't scale. Is it? Yeah. So let's take it back a little bit in terms of being around forever. What is geothermal? Geothermal is basically using the heat from the earth, right, in the earth's crust. Bring that heat right. to surface to be able to use it either as a source for heating, you know, district heating in terms of heating homes and factories and so on, or using the heat to drive some turbine or mechanical device to generate electricity, right? Usually an or organic ranking cycle, right. uh, heat to power unit. Right. So that's what you're, you're, you're trying to tap into the earth and you're using the new drilling technologies. Yeah, and more, more, more generally, there's a heat gradient everywhere. In the center of the Earth, at 6,000 degrees, same temperature as the surface of the sun. I'm sure you've heard that before. But it's, it averages out to a temperature gradient about 30 degrees C per kilometer. So anywhere you go down, there's going to be the heat. The big difference between our geothermal and traditional geothermal, traditional geothermal is all about finding a hot aquifer and producing the brine or the water from the Earth. Whereas we're just basically creating a big radiator, a, a network of, of pipes below the surface that harvests the heat gently via conduction only, and we're right. not producing a fluid. So the, the fascinating thing is you're using the drilling technologies, the horizontal drilling technologies that have been championed and pioneered in the oil and gas industry over the course of the last uh, 10, 20 years. You're drilling one well in one location horizontally, and then in another location, you're drilling another one to create a U-shaped connect them together to create a U-shaped, um, as you say, a radiator. Yeah. I, I mean, we like to say we use everything from the oil industry except the fracking, which keeps the uh, green side happy. Yeah. But uh, yes, we're, we're, we're drilling down and we're specifically using a lot of the techniques learned you know, in both in the shale revolution and in the oil sands, where they've got a lot of experience in drilling massively multilateral horizontal sections in SAG-D operations and stuff like that. And that's basically what we're doing. We're doing a bunch of things to make sure it's cost-effective by having multilaterals off the same vertical well pair, by finding other cheaper ways to case those horizontals rather than, uh, rather than you know, sticking pipe down the hole. And the only things keep the cost down. John, I have a question. So my perception is that geothermal for power generation can only happen in very few geographic locations where right. the temperature of the earth is hot enough closest to surface. Would your technology be more broadly applicable for just creating heat for buildings, or would it also be able to generate power in a lot of different locations? It's going to be able to generate power in a lot more locations than it's currently viable in. Right now, you know, as you're well aware, the total amount of geothermal power developed in Canada is zero. There's a couple of projects on the go that may change that, but you know, despite all this, still nothing to date. In places like California or Iceland or you know, Indonesia, there's the right circumstances that they can cost-effectively you know, find, find the hot aquifers and produce them. But for most places, it's not really uh, that efficient. Yeah, it's easy now, if you live on top of a volcano, but yeah, thankfully exactly, we don't. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, just to get back to the idea conceptually in the minds of our audience, you, you create this U-shaped uh, radiator and in it you circulate basically a fluid water, uh, water-based fluid, and that uh, goes round and round and 
basically through convection. Yeah. Basically, the entire design came out of one insight, and that was that when we talk about low temperature or low enthalpy geothermal, as they call it, which most of Canada would classify as, the amount of energy required to get the fluid out of the rock and then re-injected back into the rock created parasitic pump loads or a net pump demand that ate up 50 to 80% of the power generated. And that really killed it in a lot of not so high temperature areas. Mm -hmm. And so what we had is the one idea of why don't we create this loop, as you say, and just circulate a working fluid through it to pick up. And then you would not only not have the mm -hmm. parasitic pump load, you'd actually create what you call a thermosiphon effect where it pumps itself. On one side of the loop, you'd have three kilometers of hot water, which is not so dense. On the other side, you have three kilometers of cold water, which is more dense. And it creates this thermosiphon where it pumps itself, sort of like a perpetual motion machine. Yeah, so they're calling that the ever loop, right? Exactly. And then after that, basically what we did is we just went through a series of inventions and say, how can we take this design that no one's really thought through before and come up with other ways to make it more efficient. Part of it was not having to case the horizontal with metal. Some of it was having new working fluids or new configurations. And uh, we put those all together and uh, you know, we think we, we've got a winner. So that was th the theoretical basis, but recently yep. you've drilled an actual working version of this. Yeah, it's been interesting. It's like whenever you come up with something disruptive, at the start, there's a lot of uh, skepticism, especially amongst the experts in whatever particular area, in this case in geothermal. And they'd say conduction wouldn't work. Then we'd explain we'd have 100 kilometers of borehole per one loop because of the multilaterals. They'd say, oh, with that surface area, it may work, but it'd be too expensive. We'd tell them how we can make it cheaper. And then the ultimate question is, so show me, where is it? And in this case, we've gone and talked to our prospective customers and asked them, okay, we're going to do a demo project. What do you need to see proven in this, in this demonstration project? And we came up with sort of five key deliverables that we had to prove up to take away the technological risk in their, in their mind. As a result of that, we, uh, we, we did that this summer. Uh, we did a, a $10 million demonstration project in Alberta that involved a you know, two and a quarter kilometer deep loop that was two and a quarter kilometers long. And we went in and we proved all the tough bits, the intersection of the wells, doing it multiple times in extra laterals, proving our ceiling while drilling technology, proving thermosiphon, proving our thermodynamic model, and doing it all on time and on budget. So it all worked pretty well and everyone's pretty happy with that. So where is your pilot project? It's near Sylvan Lake, sort of middle of the province. And is it, did it work that you don't need the pump, that it just naturally flows because of the temperature difference? It actually, uh, it actually does, and it was fun when we commissioned it, and you would sit there and feel the hot pipes and realize it was all running without any pump whatsoever. And it's interesting, we can even turn the pump off. We have a small pump to start it the first time, but even when we turn it off and then turn it on the next day, it would start up again on its own just because of the latent heat differential between the two verticals. And then what are you using the heat for in the pilot? The pilot, we just have a chiller there just to prove it. We could have uh, put on a, uh, an ORC, uh, organic ranking cycle heat to power unit, but those are available off the shelf uh, from a number of manufacturers, and we wouldn't really have gained anything by adding that to the uh, proof of concept. But you do have the heat gradient that you think you would need to support the power generation? 
Well, in, um, in Alberta is not the first place we're going to do power projects uh, because it tends to be not as hot as we'd like. We are having some projects uh, going on in Alberta or may have, but they'll be focusing on heat. One of the reasons why we can't do it in Alberta is also because the price of the electricity is too low. Uh, but there are places where you have the right geography and economic circumstances, you know, sufficient temperatures plus high electricity places. And uh, certainly in Canada, the Arctic comes to mind. And I understand you have a project in the Yukon. And the Yukon in particular is uh, good. One, because it's, you know, it's cold outside and uh, the geology is relatively uh, hot. And, you know, prices are high because the marginal cost of power there is driven by diesel generation and or trucked in LNG from BC. So you know, we can put up a project there and achieve, you know, 20 cents a kilowatt hour or something like that, which is way above uh, Alberta. The other, the other thing about the Yukon being up in the Arctic, the other intermittent renewables like wind and solar just don't work. Yeah. And for solar, you need a six-month battery. And we all know when, they, when it's 40 below and you have the Arctic vortex there, there is no wind. So we don't really have any competition. Yeah. But what's also very interesting with the Yukon is we've got a lot of uh, partnership and support from the local First Nations. Uh, Little Salmon Carmax is already investing some of their own money to buy equity in us because uh -huh. they want us to come there, not stay away. So you got a, the First Nations uh, welcoming this type of development. Because for them, it's not just the cost and the utility, but everything like this. But imagine even if wind and solar did work, I'd ask them and say, you know, you have your traditional lands. How do you want to leave those to your grandchildren? Do you want it filled with windmills and solar panels? No, they want it left pristine exactly the way it is now, which is what you can do with our solution because it's got almost zero footprint on the surface. When you say 20 cents a kilowatt hour, I'm assuming there's a big upfront cost, but then you get many years of using that asset. Like, what would the life of the geothermal asset be? Almost infinite. We plan it and do the thermodynamic modeling for 30 years uh, before there's any taper off or uh, interference between the multilaterals. Of course, we space them farther apart, they last longer, but it, it's a generational asset. Now, when I said 20 cents, I meant that was the existing price they're offering for our type of power based on the alternative is, is diesel. I mean, they're, they're paying wind 16 cents up there, believe it or not. Yeah. Well, I want to come back to this sort of this intriguing notion about renewables, because, I mean, wind and solar, we know, are intermittent. You have to wait for the wind to blow and the sun to rise for it to work. Geothermal is, I mean, you're demonstrating that it can circulate ad infinitum. And so it becomes a, a baseload thing. So I want to come back to pairing the different energy systems together. But if I think about larger markets than the Yukon, places where they have high electricity prices, they've got uh, good heat close to the surface of the earth, places like Japan come to mind, or maybe even parts of Europe, those must be fairly lucrative potential markets for you. Yeah. Part of our team, a good part of our team is over in Europe right now in Germany, where our first commercial project is going to be in Gerritsried in Bavaria. So Germany, Netherlands, France, Italy, all fantastic markets for us. You can get 20, 30, 40 cents a kilowatt hour. Same thing in Japan. They have a 42 yen feed-in tariff, like about 40 cent feed-in tariff. So for those, it's this, we're going there. We can go places other traditional geothermal can't go, either because it's hot but dry with no aquifer, or it's just we're more more benign environmental footprint. So that's a key part of our market. We're economic in those markets 
right now, obviously, uh-huh. at those prices. The other early adopter market, which is almost a big, is what I call the island market. So again, we've got islands in the Caribbean, in the Mediterranean, places like Hawaii that aren't connected to a big grid. And so our sort of complete solution that doesn't need grid backup or storage backup is ideal for that. And they tend to be high price markets themselves because a lot of them, again, operate on diesel. But in that island market would also be characterized things like the Yukon because it's so isolated, operates like uh, an island. But another more surprising market we have is like an island, uh, the resiliency market. So we're working with Shell, talking to the uh, Department of Defense down in the U.S., and they have all these Army, Navy, and Air Force bases, and they want those bases to be able to operate like an island, even if the whole world ends mm-hmm. outside the perimeter fence. You know, they don't want to be dependent on a grid tie-in or a pipeline or fuel stockpiles or anything like that. So they like the idea of putting an Everloop right under the base to provide resilient power, and they're willing to pay a premium for that. John, what's the scale of these applications? Like, could they replace the base load of a natural gas power generator? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Obviously, at the start, one of the things that's nice about it, it's reasonably granular. Uh, We can cost-effectively put in three to four megawatts at a time, but we can stack these up and manufacture them in a repeatable process to make as much as we'd like. For example, we recently acquired some property down in Nevada, and if we were to build that out, it would represent three gigawatts of power right there. Wow. And could it go under urban areas, or do you need to be in open spaces? No, it can definitely go within urban areas because we have no water treatment on the surface. We have very small footprint. We have no gas uh, leaks or anything like that. And we have no seismicity risk, unlike some traditional geothermal. So we can put it right under the town. And the other advantage to that is, unlike wind and solar, we also generate not just the electricity, but the waste heat, which can be used for uh, district Mm -hmm. heating. And this is really important. If you look like a place like Germany, where they're, they're phasing out all the coal plants, those coal plants not only gave them all their baseload power, the exhaust heat from those plants also powered all the uh, district heating systems. So there we can go in and replace both elements of that in the way wind and solar can't. So, John, this sounds amazing. So let's move from the too-good-to-be-true discussion to some of the practical realities. Like, for one thing, you need to have drilling rigs, which are not cheap to move around. Like, you know, there's not right. a fleet of drilling rigs in Hawaii. So you, nope, uh, nope. that adds to the cost and expense of this thing, right? So there's not a drilling rig in Hawaii, but for example, where they just drilled a hot but dry hole in St. Vincent and the Grenadines, there is a rig that mm-hmm. uh, we can step right into. I was just going to ask you also about the variability in the geology that's sort of the unknown, right? Well, one of the big holdbacks of traditional geothermal is there's a huge amount of uncertainty in the exploration side, and a high number of them, you spend millions of dollars and then have to abandon them. A case in point would be Canada's own uh, DEEP project in Saskatchewan. Mm -hmm. They're back shooting seismic and drilling delineation wells 10 years into the project, again, because geology can be surprising and tricky if what you're looking for is permeability. For us, we don't really need particular rocks or particular permeability. We just need to be able to drill the rock and have heat there. And the heat's always there, and it's easy to predict because it's a smooth, gentle gradient. Mm -hmm. We have 
almost no geological risk. Yeah. But you're going to have to, you know, sort of go down a learning curve as you drill more of these things. You've done one pilot project successful in, in the Western Canadian Sedimentary Basin, which is right. well mapped, well known, and now you're going to move off into areas that are that are not. So Absolutely. I, I think it has and, tremendous. And we'll want local partners to help on that yeah, too, yeah. who know the local geology more than they do. Right. Yeah. And you had said you have a commercial project starting in Germany. Was that right? And, and again, the one in Germany, we, we've sort of made a big effort in places like the Netherlands and Germany. We've uh, applied for a lot of license areas, a little over a thousand kilometers of license area in Germany alone. But our early adopter projects are one like this Garrett 3 one, which is again, where someone went to drill a traditional uh, geothermal project and it came up hot but dry, no aquifer. And so the thing was the pads already there, ready to drill. All the contracts are in place. All the geological data is already acquired. We're just going to slip in and take the project from there and install an Everloop rather than traditional geothermal. What type of energy systems do you think Ever Technologies could be paired with? Like, for example, could it be paired with solar or, or other types of renewables? That's partly what I'm down here today uh, in California looking into. Obviously, we talked about the high price markets. Uh, Alberta and the U.S. is not a high price market. We're talking about wind and solar, you know, intermittent sources coming in at three or four cents a uh, kilowatt hour. And if we're going to be part of the larger solution, we need to know how we can fit in with that. And one of the ways we fit in with that is because places like California, frankly, have too much naked utility scale solar. Uh-huh. Um, they're going to be facing negative prices in the middle of the day but still have a short gap that, uh, you know, at the, on the shoulders, it has to be made up with uh, a lot, either a lot of batteries and or gas uh, peaking. Uh-huh. And what we've discovered, I can't really talk about the details of it, but we've found a way to, unlike traditional geothermal, make our geothermal solution uh, dispatchable. So it's not just a baseload solution, but uh, by tweaking the configuration, we can actually, you know, double the output in the evening, for example, where there's a, a, a net demand still in, in uh, California yeah. and, uh, you know, recharge at midday. And so in that sense, both in California and Japan, what we're talking to solar developers about is taking an existing solar field, putting an Everloop right underneath it, and then being able to dispatch our power around the existing solar peak mm-hmm. so we have a higher capacity usage of the transmission line and a higher density of energy production without having to take up another valley with solar farms. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. So what? tell us about the receptivity by utilities in your target market and maybe more broadly to this, because I don't think this sort of breakthrough that you're talking about is well known. No, it's not. Everyone we talked to originally on the traditional geothermal side was very skeptical. They've all come around uh, eventually as we talked to them. But when we talk to people, like I was talking to Kaiso this morning in California here, uh, network operator, and, and there, people like that, or the community choice aggregators here, any of the or the utility players in Europe, they're all super excited because we represent that little jigsaw piece that they've been missing, mm-hmm. something that's scalable, green, and baseload, or even better, dispatchable. The challenge, as you point out, Peter, is that to do this properly is a lot of work, takes mm-hmm. a lot of money. So we're in full-scale business development you know, mode in parallel on basically billions of dollars worth of the projects, but at the same time trying to raise enough capital to help seed mm-hmm. um, the financing of these things. Yeah. You know, what I find 
as I said, maybe I said it earlier, but you know, what's really intriguing about this is the technology has been developed and it's been developed here in the oil and gas industry. So there is expertise and you, you have uh, now, you have geologists and drilling people from the oil and gas industry that have migrated to your company, right? Yeah, it's a real swords into plowshares sort of story, taking oil and gas technology and creating, you know, not just the definitive green power source, but one that's based on all the areas of expertise we have here in Alberta and in Calgary in, in particular. So it's it's a great way to reposition to create a green export market based on the skill set of the old market. And doing all that and we're attracting VC money in from Asia into Alberta to do that, it's very uh, satisfying. So, John, you know, I know you've noticed that a lot of the oil and gas companies, or some of them, have made commitments to net zero or making very big reductions in their greenhouse gas emissions. For example, CNRL and Synovus recently. You know, being that they're very comfortable with drilling and drilling in Western Canada, do you think there's an interest from some of those companies into what you're doing? Because to me, it would be useful to help them potentially offset some of their greenhouse gas emissions from using fossil fuels within their operations. Right. I think it's clear that the oil companies have a lot to bring to the geothermal uh, industry. What's interesting, so is a lot of them in the past, like Shell, for example, years ago made a very conscious decision not to do geothermal and to do almost everything else, despite the similarity of the skill set. And you'd ask, why is that? And it was all about that it just wasn't scalable enough to make it big enough to be of interest to them. In fact, quite ironically, when we came up with our original design and went and talked to Shell, one of the guys there says, well, you know, geothermal, really, here's my list of 10 reasons why geothermal would never scale. And we looked down the list, and that's actually the first time we figured we were in the right track. We had solved all 10 problems without really even realizing there was 10 problems. Uh, but now that that's sort of coming around, I think we are seeing some uh, some interest mm-hmm. both from uh, the oil and gas companies and from some of the wind and solar players who are looking for the next thing to develop. Mm-hmm. Well, one of your challenges will be educating people that your solution is different than the paradigm that they have, right? Which is a challenge because there is an understanding of geothermal out there and, and takes a long time to overcome those perceptions. Well, that was before I came on this podcast. No, that's, <laughs> that's right. We're going to set them straight. And, you know, I, I really, uh, a really exciting story. And it's exciting to see how we can take the skills and experience from a century old industry here in the oil and gas industry in Western Canada and apply that knowledge to think about how we're going to address the needs for energy in a low carbon future. And it's exciting that people with the skills that they've learned here in Canada and Western Canada can apply those to these new technologies. This is really something Canada can lead the world in. Yeah, fantastic. Well, John, uh, you know, the the world of energy is never dull. We know that. It's uh, (laughs) evolving. The technology is sort of coming from left, right and center to alter the cost profile, the environmental profile, uh, and the, the next decade is very exciting to say the least. Thanks for sharing your visions and your company. Where, where can people go to your website and uh, take poke around and take a look at uh, some diagrams of how this thing works? Yeah, at ever.com, E-A-V-O-R.com, and uh, there's a contact us thing at the back. Uh, feel free to drop us a line. Mm-hmm. And I will put a link on the uh, show notes, too, directly to the mm-hmm. website as well. Good. Well, thank you for coming on our show, John. And thank well, you for to, having me on. Yeah, for sure. 
And thanks to our audience for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, tell someone else about us and rate us on the app that you use. For more ideas and insights, visit arcenergyinstitute.com.